I remember in my first year at Regent College, at our very first all-school retreat at Warm Beach in Washington. That first evening, we gathered together for worship, a couple of hundred of us in that big conference room. We began with a powerful worship, and then it was time for the message, and one of the professors stepped up to the pulpit. He began to speak. His name was Lauren Wilkinson. He was a professor of interdisciplinary studies and Christian literature at Regent. And as he stepped up into the pulpit, he had this big book in his hand, and he began to open up that book, and he said, let me read to you from one of the greatest stories ever written. And he said, my wife and I read through this story at least once a year. And we were all expectant, waiting on the edge of our seats for him to read some profound story from the Bible. And he said, the story is called The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> now, I don't remember what passage it was that he read, but I do remember what he spoke about that evening. And that was the importance of stories, about narrative, about the importance of how there is this progression in narrative. And he was speaking to us incoming students. He was talking about narrative and how, how we could process our lives, helping us to think about our lives in this sense of narrative. What are our stories? He's help, trying to help us understand what our stories were. And not just our own stories, but our stories in light of God's story. Of course, the greatest story ever written, the Bible. And God is writing this big story, but also he's incorporating our little stories, our individual stories into it. And that's what makes our stories make sense. That's what gives our stories, our own individual stories, meaning. And I remember that evening because it, was, it spoke truth to my experience. It helped me make sense of my life at that time that I could know that I wasn't simply living life randomly. I wasn't just simply living from day to day and from week to week and year to year, trying to make sense of my own life. But there is this story that God is writing in my life, that every day that I live, every year that I live, is part of that story. And I'm not writing with words on paper, but I'm writing with my decisions in my life. And God is incorporating that story into his story, into a greater story. Well, finding our story within God's greater story, that's, that's what I want to continue to talk about with us today. And our entry point into this great, grand story, this meta-narrative we call it, is the ancient word from the Old Testament, Messiah. Messiah. So here is a... Um, outline just of, of where I'm going today. Uh, I want to talk about the background of this word, Messiah. And then I want to talk about Psalm 2. That's our main text for today. I'll read it in context and think about the Messiah as an individual and then Messiah within the form and the frame of a narrative. And then I want to bring it back to us and circle back and ask about what about us today? How do we fit within this? And where do we fit in within this? So as you know, uh, we've been uh, going through this series that Tim McIntosh kicked off for us uh, a couple of months ago called Ancient Words, 
giving life, and we've been looking at eight different words in the Old Testament. But of course, they're not just words that are confined to the Old Testament, right? They're actually these large themes that are found throughout the Old Testament, but also carry on into the New Testament, these important themes. And, and just before I continue with our word today, I just want to give um, a word of acknowledgement and appreciation for our own preaching team at Granville Chapel as they've uh, carried on this, this series with me and with Tim. I mean, preaching is difficult, but preaching on word studies is even more difficult because here you're trying to gather all these different scriptural passages, maybe dozens or maybe even hundreds of them from the Bible and trying to synthesize and unite and trying to understand and bring uh, one coherent message out of all of them. So I just wanted to give them a word of acknowledgement and thanks and congratulations on a job well done. Word studies are not easy. Now, part of the beauty of doing a word study is that you have this sense of richness of what um, that word represents in the Bible. And I think uh, somebody mentioned in this meeting that we had just past week from the preaching teaching team that if we get nothing else except that there's a sense of the richness and the depth of the Bible and how profound these words can be and are and that it incites us and inspires us to want to come to God's word and grow closer to him, then I think that's a job already well done and that you have this desire to grow closer to God, then I think the preaching teaching team will have found that, will have thought that they have done uh, their job, at least in bringing you a step closer and wanting to come closer to God. Now, Messiah. So these are the eight words that, that we've looked at, and I'm just going to list them out. I won't explain them or review them, and they're there in the in the sermon series, or you can read through the uh, sermon notes if you want, but Yahweh, covenant, word, spirit, mercy, law, peace, and then today, Messiah. So hopefully as I read through that list of words, as you hear those words, they represent something now that is richer and deeper than just what you had maybe experienced and known before. So Messiah, Mashiach, today. So why don't you say that with me? Mashiach. Mashiach in the Hebrew. And uh, that last consonant, uh, hate, uh, it's kind of a guttural sound. It's like a, maybe a K, but you kind of aspirate it. Mashiach. Yeah, I remember learning Hebrew from my professor at UBC. He was a Jewish, a Jewish fellow. So um, yeah, he pronounced it. Really well, Mashiach. Now, what's significant about this word Messiah is, or one of the things, is that today we're talking about not just a concept, not just an idea, but we're talking about a person. Just as we had begun the series talking about Yahweh, today we focus again on a person. And what this word means is anointed one. And it comes from the word to anoint, mashach in the Hebrew. 
And the, the noun form is Mashiach, the one who is anointed. And it's used in the Old Testament of several um, different people or different contexts. One is to... Uh, one is for anointing priests, one is for anointing um, prophets, and another is for anointing kings. It's also used in the context of anointing people who are sick or who are in need of healing. And in the ancient world, what they did was they would take oil, olive oil, pure olive oil, and they would anoint in these different circumstances. So what is significant about oil that they would use oil to anoint people? Well, partly in the ancient world, oil, olive oil in particular, had medicinal value. And so it was, had certain antibacterial and uh, antiseptic qualities. And so it was used as a healing balm, as a kind of a healing agent, but it also had cleansing properties. And so it was used to, to cleanse people. And that's why it has this tradition of being used to anoint people who are in need of healing. But also in the context of the ancient world, it's a precious commodity. It was something that was very sought after. And so it becomes a symbol for God's blessing and God's abundance. So the one who was anointed would be blessed, seen to be blessed, or would be prayed over to be blessed and to receive blessing and abundance from God. So we have that uh, psalm, that line in Psalm 23 that says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. There's this image of the abundance of the blessing of God, the, the um the richness of God flowing onto the one who has been anointed. And then third of all, and this is the important point for us, is that it has this symbol for also being consecrated, for being set apart, for being given some kind of a divine task or commission or some kind of divine authority. And so priests and prophets, by virtue of their role, were anointed because they were set apart. They were special. They were seen to be as some kind of a mediator between God and humankind. Priests as this mediator and prophets as bringing God's word to people were anointed. But so were kings. Kings also were a kind of representation of God to people. On the one hand, kings represented God to the people in terms of his authority. And then on the other hand, kings were to lead God's people to God. So again, they were this kind of a mediator between God and people. And they had this anointing. They were set apart for that special role. But as the Old Testament story progresses, the anointed one, this word, Mashiach, the one who is anointed, becomes more and more used for the kings, and especially for one king in particular, as Israel kind of reflects back and looks back on its history, it reflects on especially the king of David, King David. Um, here's just a, a kind of a, a graphic showing the use of the word Mashiach, in the Old Testament, it occurs 39 times, the, the noun form. 
And this is the various books in the Old Testament where it occurs. And you see, I've circled there for you. First and second Samuel, referencing almost always David, also Saul, I think, once or twice. And then in the Psalms, again, referencing King David as the anointed one. So as the Old Testament progresses, the anointed one, the Messiah or Mashiach, really is this deep association with King David. So our primary text that I want to talk about, let's turn to that now. Psalm 2, as Mike read so eloquently for us today. And, and this is an important song, psalm because along with Psalm 1, Psalm 1 and 2 form this kind of introduction to the Psalter or to the book of the Psalms. And how do we know that? Because Psalm 2 is a totally different kind of a uh, topic or theme than Psalm 1. But we think that Psalm 1 and 2 really are meant to be read together because of what this literary device that we call an inclusio. So Psalm 1 begins a word with the word blessed. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of sinners. And then Psalm 2 ends with this word blessed. And so we think that this inclusio, these two words, blessed and blessed, really help us to understand Psalm 1 and 2 together as an introduction to the, all of the books of the Psalms. And why that's important for us today is because of the central theme of Psalm 2, which is about the anointed one, about the Messiah. And so what that says to us is that actually Psalm 1 and 2, righteousness, and from Psalm 1 and Psalm and the anointed one, Psalm 2, this frames the entire Psalter frames all 150 books of the Psalms. And that is the experience of Israel, ancient Israel, later on as it reflects on the book of the Psalms. Even though maybe half of the Psalms are written by King David, the anointed one, really all of the Psalms are really associated with him. And as they look for Messiah in the time of Jesus, as they think about they, they reflect on the promises of God in the Old, the Old Testament, the scriptures. They go to primarily one source, actually, the Psalms, because it's associated with David, King David. They also, of course, went to the prophets, but the Psalms even more than the prophets because of this association with David. So this psalm, Psalm 2, can be uh, broken down into four different sections. The first section, verses 1 to 3, really, the psalmist describes the nations that are opposed to God, the world and its pride, the world leaders defying God, plotting against God, not only God, but also against his king, the anointed one. That's that word, the anointed is Messiah. Let me read it out to us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in these four different scenes, that first one sets it up with this opposition to God. In the second section, verses four to six, the psalmist describes God's response to the nations. God laughs at them. He holds them in derision. 
He has, in other words, complete power over this world and over them, has authority over them, including his ability to establish his own anointed one, his own king, his chosen one in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, that is God. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in the third section, the psalmist speaks of himself and testifies in first person as God's own representative. And here he speaks of himself as being God's son, his begotten. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so now he's speaking about himself and saying that the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is the empower and the authority that the Lord God entrusts and um, places on him. And then in the last section, the psalmist addresses the nations. And now he's calling on them to acknowledge God, to acknowledge and to revere God and to fear him and not just God, but also his son. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, the first thing I want to draw our attention to, there are two poles that I kind of want to talk about today, two kind of polar opposites. Well, not opposites, but two complementary aspects of this psalm that I want to draw our attention to today. The first is this close relationship that God, Yahweh, has with his anointed, with his Messiah with his chosen king. In fact, he calls him his son, that whom he has begotten, he's brought into this world. And as we read this, we get the sense of just how close this relationship is between God and his own son, that he calls him, in fact, his own son. Who is this one that is his chosen, his Messiah. Now, as Christians, we automatically think about Jesus because the New Testament has used this text in application to Jesus. But in its historical context in the ancient world, it was not talking about Jesus in the first instance. In that historical context, it was talking about David, King David. So there is a sense in which God and the human figure, David, have this really close, intimate relationship. And we see that throughout all of the Psalms, many of the Psalms. That's why the Psalms have been used for centuries, in fact, as a kind of a training ground for prayer. Because as a psalmist prays to God, there is this close intimacy that the psalmist has with God. This kind of rawness that he's able to, to come to God, 
It's a very close, intimate way. So we think of Psalm 51, which is this confession of David after he has sinned. And then he, he, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He's committed adultery and murder. And then he comes, he's confronted, and he comes and he confesses to the Lord. And he says, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. It's not that he hasn't hurt other people. He has, of course. But in this close relationship that he has with God, he knows that he's hurt God more than anyone else. He's ruptured that relationship between himself and God. And so also in Psalm 139, David talks about how God knows him. Even before a word is formed on his tongue, he knows that word. He knows him when he stands, when he sits, when he rises. He knows him through and through, the psalmist says. There's this close relationship between God and the psalmist. And that's why there's this tradition of using the psalms in the ancient world as well as in the modern world to learn how to pray, to learn how to develop this close relationship, this intimate relationship with God. So there's, on, on the one hand, there's this almost private, close, intimate relationship between God and the Messiah, God and David. And of course, as Christians, we are invited into that through Jesus. That's the first thing I want to talk about the first aspect of Messiah. But the second one is complementary, I believe, because not only does David have this very close, intimate relationship with God, but there's this other aspect of his Messiahship too. And that is something that is not so individual, something that's not so private, and not so personal. In fact, it has to do something with his role as king. It's something that's very public, in fact, his role as king. And in fact, this psalm that we just have read to us, I mean, it begins by addressing uh, the nations, the entire world around Israel, those people who were opposed to God, who were seen to be ones who were not actually aligned with who God is. They didn't recognize his authority as supreme sovereign over this universe. They're just addressed as the nations, the world, which does not recognize God as being God and therefore don't recognize the people of Israel as being God's people. And so there is this sense of, um, with this word Messiah, not just the individual close relationship that God has chosen this one and anointed this one, but He's anointed him, he's chosen him for a purpose. Messiah fits in to God's purposes in the world and what God has been doing in history. So God has chosen Abraham as an individual, but through Abraham, he wanted to, to start a nation, a tribe. And through that tribe, he wanted to bless the entire world all peoples. And so God is working in this narrative, in this history, and then the Messiah comes as one individual to represent 
what God has been doing to bring God's people to himself and to represent God to this people. And so there's this very historical and public meta-narrative, we call it, into which Messiah fits. So there's this balance, I think, between the individual, this very personal, and then this bigger collective narrative that God is working in the world through David. And I believe the same is true for us as believers. And we are invited to enter into this story too, through Jesus, through the descendant of David, the descendant of King David, as the first Christians realize that actually the story is still being written and it's Jesus who now fulfills what, what David had come to do. And Jesus is the son of God and also has this very deep, intimate relationship with him. And through Jesus, through Jesus, all the nations are invited in to have this relationship with him as well. And so it's also our invitation that we as believers are invited into this story. And I think that same dynamic is at work in our lives, is that we have this invitation to have this very close relationship through Jesus, with God, through, through God's anointed, that we are also called sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. And so we have this privilege of having this close relationship with him. But, and here's a but, it's not just for ourselves. It's not just for our own sake. I think in the Western world, we often stop there, or maybe we emphasize that aspect that it's about our own lives. But God's got a, a bigger picture in mind. He's got a greater story. He's writing a bigger story than just our little chapter, our little page that we are writing. He's got this big story. And so we enter into it, yes, but we're invited into something much, much larger. And that has something to do with the church. It has something to do with community. It's something to do with each other and God's kingdom on, in this world. Now, I've lost my page <laughs> because I'm not used to flipping manuscripts right now. Um, let me try to see where I am. Uh, next slide, yeah. Now, this is just a picture of all the conflict in the world that's going on. And this was actually kind of a dated uh, picture that I pulled, a map from, from the internet. And because it doesn't even have the Israel-Gaza conflict, this has all the other conflicts in the world. So like in Russia, Ukraine, across Africa, South America, and Mexico. This is not just some wars, but also uh, terrorism, war, uh, civil wars, drug wars, uh, ethnic violence. You can see that so much of our globe so much of the nations are still embroiled in violence, conflict today. And if we look at this from the world's perspective, I think it's easy for us to lose hope. 
it's easy for us to become depressed just thinking about how hard this world is and all the nations which do not recognize God, do not live according to what God wants in this world. Now, the psalmist, we have to remember that the psalmist was writing in a time that might be similar, analogous to as we look out into this world. So I think there's a laser pointer here. Yeah. So where's Israel? Right about there, right? Like it almost doesn't even make the map because it's so small, so tiny. And in the ancient world, it was just the same, just as small, just as tiny. And so in the ancient world, the nations referred to, like, say, the Roman Empire or the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, Egypt, Persia, these great big empires across the ancient world. And yet the psalmist has the audacity to say, that no, it's not these kings, those kings who have power, who are in authority. It is who? It is Yahweh, God, the God of this tiny little tribe of Israel. He's the one who is in charge. He is the one who is sitting on his throne in heaven, laughing almost. Well, laughing. It's ridiculous, he says, almost, that these other kings are in rebellion to him. And so the psalmist sees with eyes of faith. He doesn't just look on the world and see all the troubles and all the opposition, but he has eyes of faith because he knows some of Israel's history. He knows that God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's defeated Egypt, this great empire in the ancient world. And he's made these promises to David, these eternal promises. And then we as believers, sit on the other side of those promises. So we have even greater hope, I believe, than the ancient Jewish people did because we know we sit on the shoulders of their heritage, of their history, but we also see how Jesus fulfilled all these promises of old, including David and, and the promise to David of an everlasting covenant and kingdom. And then the church is brought into that through Jesus in faith. And so as we kind of think about this world and its opposition to God, its opposition to one another, as maybe as we think about our own lives as well, the challenges in our lives, the darknesses in our lives, the things that are difficult and challenging, I think it's easy if we just look at it with the world's eyes or with human eyes to lose hope. But if we remember that God is king, then we remember and we can have hope. We can have faith. And as we put ourselves into God's narrative, then I think we can make sense of our lives and we can have faith and hope. Um, one last slide here. This is Viktor Frankl. He is a psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. He survived the concentration camps in Germany and then afterwards, having experienced firsthand those concentration camps, he wrote a little book. He survived, and this little book is called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And what he observed in the concentration camps was that those who were the most resilient, even in the face of 
such adversity and evils and atrocities of human suffering and death, those who could even thrive within those circumstances were the ones who had meaning, who had a sense of purpose. It almost didn't matter what that sense of purpose was. Maybe it was for uh, to see someone again, a loved one, on the other side of this experience. It was to, to wait for, for someone. But it was some kind of a purpose that gave them hope and meaning, even in their most difficult of circumstances. And that, I believe, is what God's narrative does for us, isn't it? That we have our own narratives, of course, that God is working in our lives. But then he's plugging us into this greater story, the story which it culminates in Revelation, the end, the eschaton, in which Jesus will come again. We are a part of that. And as I said, we are invited into that, especially through the church. As we come together, we come in Jesus' name and we form a new body, a new nation, a spiritual nation in which we treat each other the way that God wants us to treat each other. And then we show those who have not yet known or who do not yet know God what it is like to be truly human and to be truly how God wants us to live and to show, therefore, the world who God truly is. So let me close by asking us some questions. So where is he calling us to be faithful in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our lives? Where might he be calling us to be perhaps more present to the people around us? Where might he be calling us to perhaps walk with someone um, in love and in support? Where might he be calling us to strengthen the work of the church and what he's doing in this community? Or maybe you felt like you have never really belonged and you've never really felt a sense of community or been part of something bigger. Well, that's what he's inviting us into here today. And that's what I believe this church is about as well. So I invite you to discover more about what this greater story is and who Jesus is. And invite you to welcome Jesus into your life through faith so that you might plug into this larger community and larger story. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for this word, Messiah, the anointed one, and we give you thanks for the Old Testament scriptures which point us to David and this very deep, intimate connection that she had with you. But not only in a personal, individual connection, but he represented something much larger, the story that you're writing, that you were writing, and that you are continuing to write today. And Lord, we give you thanks that this Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus the truly anointed one, the truly chosen one from beginning of time and through whom we enter into this story as well, all of us here today. Lord, as we contemplate and reflect on our own lives, 
as we lift up those places of challenge and difficulty and perhaps darkness in our lives, Lord, help us to not lose hope. Help us to see with eyes of faith. Help us to see that you are God. You are on the throne in heaven. And you know all that is going on. And you will one day make all things right. And you're inviting us to be a part of what you're doing in this world. So help us, Lord, to take steps of faith, to continue to want to journey with you and invite you into our lives so that we can make more sense of our lives. That these are not random happenings that are happening in our lives, but there's a purpose to them. So, Lord, give us your meaning. Give us your purpose. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.